my jobs as a pastor, I have the glorious opportunity to bless people, but I have a lot of times uh, probably the most disconcerting thing that I do is to do funerals. And I'm like, and I was praying about this, what I was going to talk to you about today, because I have a vision of where I want to go, but I felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you something this morning, and He wants, I feel like what He wants to do is instill confidence within the Christian and within the believer, and into the life of the believer. And so we're going to talk about assurance this morning, and one of the things that happens is, um, I just did a funeral this week. Which again, it's like, wow, dude, what a downer, man. I'm coming into the new year. I mean, this isn't really like where I want to go. But yeah, you do want to go here because I feel like God has something for you. And I was praying about it this morning and I asked the Lord, one of the questions I get a lot of time is how do I know do, do, that my, my mother, my brother, my uncle, whatever, how do I know they're, they're Christians, but how do I know they're with Jesus? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Death is an unnatural occurrence that will befall us all. Doesn't matter how fast you're running. Doesn't matter how good looking you are, doesn't matter what background you come from, nobody, none of us get out of here alive, okay? And so the issue is not whether death is going to happen or even visit us at some point in our life. This life is something that is passing away. The reality and what the truth is, is not what is temporary, but what is eternal. Death is unnatural to us. Did you know that? Death literally freaks us out. It makes us very uncomfortable. It may, we don't even want to talk about it. We're like, we don't want to acknowledge it. And uh, so some of you over, the, over this next coming season, unfortunately, there's a passing. There's things that happen. Death is an unwelcome visitor that comes very suddenly. A friend of mine, his wife died recently. He didn't even see it coming. She went into the hospital 11 days. She's no longer with him. A woman that I just did a funeral for this week, her mom went into the hospital, on, on, uh, she'd been in and out of the hospital, she was under doctor's care, she went in the hospital and she passed away, I didn't even know she was sick. Neither one of these women, that people even knew that they were sick, and they were taken from, the, from their families very, very suddenly. Bible tells us not to fear sudden disaster that overtakes those who don't know. We need to know, and we need to be sure, and we need to be certain it is death is unnatural to us because, say this with me, I was not, I was not created, created to, die. to die. Death is a foreigner. Man and woman were not created to die. You were born eternally. And in fact, you're still eternal. Your spirit will endure. The only thing that dies is the biological process ceases. That's what happens. So the purpose of this message, my underlying purpose, as instructed to me, was to impart assurance to you. So that is my goal this morning. So Hebrews 2.14 tells us this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Speaking of Jesus, he became like us. Why? So that he may break the power, that he, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And to free those who all their lives were held slavery by what? The fear of death. It's one of the underlying fears. To man, you know, man and woman's greatest fear, number one, is public speaking. Right? People are freaked out about public speaking way more than they are death. So death is like number two, right? So see, would I rather die or would I rather publicly speak? Hmm. <laughs> but it tells us, you know, one of the things the Bible tells us is that it tells us all of the reasons why Jesus came. It'll tell us in different passages the purpose that Christ came to, set, to, to save sinners, to free us from, to heal the oppressed, he does, to destroy the power of the devil. Here it tells us that he came to conquer death. 
and to free us from the consciousness that we're afraid of dying. There's no fear in death for the believer. There's no fear. So it tells us this thing right here. It tells us that Jesus became like us. He took on flesh and blood because the power had been given. What happens is, is where, where sin comes from is that we come, sin comes from Adam. In order to understand death, the great mystery, and what social, uh, social engineers will tell you and what is common when in our culture is that when you're dead, you're dead. You're just pushing up daisies, your worm food, whatever. There's no further existence beyond that. Well, I would say to you, you who told you that? You know, there's no, there's no truth in that. God made man to be eternal. We are eternal. Our spirit, you're a three-part being. You're a spirit, you're a soul, and you're a body. Every one of us are three parts. Most people are not attuned to their spiritual side because the Bible tells us they're spiritually dead. That's why when they come to Christ, it's as if this whole other person emerged. Because now the, the spiritual side of them or the spiritual acknowledgement of who they are now has become alive. So we're spirit, we're soul, and we're body. Adam sinned, okay? Here's the origins. Death came from a certain place. Death was never in the original design. Jesus freaked out at death. I don't know if you ever saw that, right? There wasn't a funeral he didn't encounter without, he interrupted every funeral procession he came in contact with. If there was a funeral, Jesus said, nah, not on my watch. Every time he did that, because death was a foreigner. The Bible tells us that death itself is the last enemy. Hell and the grave are the last things to be thrown, to be destroyed. If you read your Revelation, all of these things, death actually comes after the devil himself is destroyed. So the devil is thrown up and then he destroys the last enemy, which is death. Therefore, by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death, say this, death has passed to us all. That's right. Because we are all descendants of Adam. Because all have sinned. First of all, we're born in sin. And secondly, we prove out our sin by the stupid things that we do all of the time. Man's greatest sin and the greatest issue within man's heart, the greatest sin is that we don't believe we need Jesus. We don't believe we need God. We believe we're our own God. Or we believe we can make God up as we understand him to be. That is literally the height of human arrogance. For a human being to actually say, this is who God is, or to create God in our own image, which is the breaking of the second commandment, it's not God in our own image. It's not God as we understand him to be. It's God as he declares himself to be. And if you're ever familiar with your Bible, the Bible explains God in no terms at all. The Bible reveals him. Does not explain him. Scripture reveals and declares him, Period. And he basically says, deal with it. We have the revelation of who God is through Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have the declaration of who he is through his work over and over again. In the beginning, God. No explanation there. He just says, in the beginning, here he is. And we go, if you read the prophetic books and you read the things that God would say as he marched through time and as he began to deal with man, even in our lostness, God declares himself to mankind. And so man, in his arrogance, one of the greatest testimonies of our sin, when people say, well, I don't believe Jesus is the only way, the only thing you're doing is validating the very root of sin itself. The root of sin itself says, I don't need God. That's, that was the root of sin. Adam's sin wasn't because he smoked, he drank, or he chewed, at, at, or he hung out with people, or he did wrong things or stupid things. Adam's sin, the sin of separation, was he pushed God away and said, I don't need you. I'll be my own God. I'm like the Most High. That's his problem. 
That was the sin of the devil that caused him to fall, and that was the devil's sin that he imparted to mankind. And that is exactly the confusion that we have in our world today. We have all sorts of philosophies. Uh, one philosophy will say there is no God. One philosophy will say I'm God. One philosophy will say human intellect is God. That's American culture. We don't worship idols made with hands. We worship idols created with a mind. America worships the consciousness. America worships the intellect. The Bible calls that intellectual idolatry, where you precede the mind or you hold the mind above the creator. You worship the creation rather than the creator. Intellect is given by the Father. Intellect is a gift to us, but it is never to be worshipped. It is never to be esteemed above Him. Intellect is to be subjected to Him. In other words, I have my own ideas, Lord, but I'm going to submit what I do not know or what I think I believe unto you, and I'm going to believe that you will show me all things in time. Or I'm going to use my intellect spiritually to pursue the things that I do not know. Intellect's not a, intellect is not to be worshipped, and that's exactly part of the culture in the United States. We don't have, you know, we're not burning incense or we're not doing like dances. I mean, we live in Miami, so there is some voodoo going on here. Okay, so there's some crazy stuff going on here. But if you go to any of the islands around here, you want to know what we want to know what idol worship is. You don't have to go far. You go to some of these. You go to some of the countries around the world, the, the ones that have not been encountered by the gospel, and you're going to see what idolatry actually is. We don't practice it that way, so we think we're superior. But what we worship in America is the intellect. We worship the mind. And so our idolatry is not something that we created with our hands. Our idolatry is that we have created a god in our own image. That's our problem. A God as we understand him to be, not a God as he declares himself to be. So this is the issue. We're descendants of Adam, so we are born with an offense. Next slide. For by one man's offense, see where death came from? One man's offense, death ruled. Much more they will receive the abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness shall reign through the life of Jesus. The Bible tells us Jesus became the last Adam. Adam, we talk about this, it's theological terms, it's called the fountainhead, right? So the, the, the fountainhead of creation was Adam. All, flow, all of the rivers, all of our descendants, all of our ancestry flows from Adam. Not your grandma, not your grandpa, that's part of it, but ultimately Adam. So we are all inheritors of the sin of Adam. And so when we become to Christ, we're born again. And what happens is we, we're translated from darkness to light. We're no longer in the spirit born of the seed of Adam. We're born of the seed of Christ. That's a spiritual reality. You understand that? No longer descendants of Adam. Translated from darkness to light. You say, well, where is that in reality? See, say this with me. Salvation, Salvation. is easy. Sanctification is where the work is. Sanctification is taking that which is in the spirit and bringing it into the natural. Sanctification is taking your eternal identity and making it come out in your life in everyday practical terms. Sanctification is taking your inheritances that God has clearly decreed over your life and bringing them into your world and watching them manifest. Salvation is a gift. Sanctification is the partnership. Sanctification is the work. You see, that's the divergence. And what Christians believe oftentimes is just because when we surrender our heart to Christ, we inherit salvation, we think that all of the promises themselves, Jesus is going to do it for you. He's not going to do it for you. You have to partner with him. Even though he has power for you, he has promises for you, he has purpose for you, he has destiny, it requires your participation in your partnership. Adam's sin, two Greek words for sin. Very clear in the Bible. Harmatano, harmatia. Harmatano is the word offense. 
So by one man's offense, what did Adam do? Adam offended God. He pushed him away. That's what he did. So that led to the sin of what, what we would theologically call separation because Adam pushed God away. The hero fell. That's what that word is used for. If you read the writings, I tell you this a lot, but if you read the writings of the ancient Greeks, they're very clear on these words. So even our understanding of what these words mean, we, we go back to the, to the Greek philosophers and we see how they were used within the Koine culture or the Greek culture themselves. And one of the ways this was used, harmatana was used that a hero has fallen. That's what it means. And what does that mean? That means you were created to be heroically. You were created to be heroes. We were created heroic. God created us to be masters. God created us to serve as lords beneath him. That's how we were created. And so the hero fell. What is the offense? Harmatana, we pushed him away. We think we pushed God away. We didn't, God didn't move. I always tell people, when, when, when Adam pushed, he fell. <laughs> God didn't move. Adam was the only one that moved. And he offended God by saying that God doesn't need, I don't need him. That was the lie of the devil. You eat of the tree of knowledge. You will be like him. God's keeping something from you because he knows you don't need him. He knows you really don't need him. He knows you can do it yourself. He knows if you get your PhD and your MBA and you do all these other things, you won't need him. He knows if you make enough money, you won't need him. He knows if you read enough books, you won't need him. Who told you that? That's the offense. God is the source of life, so death comes from the offense. Where does death come from? It is not created in the order of God. The earth itself is not created in God's original design. It's fallen. We live in a bombed-out shell of an original creation. There's a cathedral in Germany that was bombed out, one of the most beautiful cathedrals in all of Europe, got bombed during World War II, and they said even after they walked into the cathedral, even though you could only see the remains of it, you could tell that this place was once beautiful. That's where we live. This is not the paradise of God's creation. We live in a fallen world. We live in a bombed-out shell. And even what we're looking around and we see is we can say, well, this place is beautiful. Look at God's creation. But this is nothing compared to what it was originally. We're fallen. That's the point. Death has entered not just mankind, but the creation itself. Creation fell with man. Man was bound to the creation. The creation cannot be fully restored until man is restored. Palingenesia. When, man, when Jesus comes and brings the fullness of renewal unto us, then creation itself will be restored. Creation itself is subject to the sons and daughters of God. Creation groans. For what? The revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Well, I've heard that taught many times as I was in Bible school. It's just waiting for Jesus to come back. And when Jesus comes back and reveals our full identity and we're fully manifested into who we are, then creation itself will be redeemed. Well, I would pivot that and I would say that's right here and now. I believe that the earth itself is now subjected to the sons and daughters of God. And what the creation is waiting for, it's waiting to move when the sons and daughters of God know actually who they are. And we begin to operate in our inheritance. We begin to understand the principles and we begin to live a lifestyle in accordance to who we truly are. Creation itself will shift. Your immediate world will shift. The world, the culture will shift. The, the world, life itself will shift. There will always be evil. Evil is not just going to evaporate. There will always be conflict. That's just not going to go away. But what will happen is there will be an installment of peace into the process. There will be something else coming into the system. Adam offended God by pushing him away. So in order for that to happen, so there's an offense, there's a pushing away, there's a separation. That separation produced death, the death of the body, ultimately, and ultimately, in many cases, the death of the spirit. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is God's love to you and I. Jesus made a way home. Okay? He's made a way home. He didn't make many ways home. He's made one. Okay? There's not 30 paths to God. We don't earn it. We don't follow God in, in, in the ways that we feel like we should or we think that we should. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one, absolutely no one, comes unto the Father or enters the kingdom but through him. That's the point. Humanity, deity took on humanity so that humanity could return to, 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 to our, our rightful place in the, in the context of the deity. The gift of God, so the gift comes through Jesus Christ, no other way. The gift is not like the offense. For if many died by the offense of one, how much more does God's grace and the gift come to the many by the one man, Jesus Christ? It overflows. So what God is telling us is that the gift of salvation is far more encompassing than the, than the offense and the fallenness of sin. The benefits of salvation, not just the forgiveness of sins and the granting of eternal life, but is, is, that's just not the benefit, but the fullness of what salvation is is far more encompassing than sin. We fixate so many times in the church on sin as if sin possesses the power. The power is not in sin, man. The power is in the Spirit. And the all-encompassing grace and power of God far surpasses anything that sin can do. See, cultures can spend decades building something up, and in a moment it can fall. The devil can spend a lifetime bonding, binding you, and you can partner with him the whole time, and in a moment Jesus can set you free. The gift far surpasses the, 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 the sin. It's overflowing. It far exceeds that. No matter what your generations have built, no matter what you've inherited generationally, if you will return and get things straight before the Father and know where your true inheritance comes from, the gift will change everything about you. I'm a, an image of that. Many of you, your lives are pictures of that. You don't come for everything's nice and neat and orderly. You'd like to pretend that way. You'd like everybody to think that's the way it is. Jesus called it a principle of the gospel called redemption and lift. Redeem means to buy back or to bring back. So Jesus redeems you, brings you back to, you, to himself, and he lifts you back into your rightful standing. And if you will follow him, the fruit of that will manifest itself over time. Some of you, if you looked at your family members, and you looked at their choices, particularly as it relates to the gospel, and those of you who go all in on the gospel, you will see that the roads completely, they just diverge. I mean, I can look at my own household. I can look at my own family, right? My daughter was just asking me about this at Christmas time. And I said, listen, my bloodline and my family is the household of faith. As much as I love my mother, as much as I love my brother, as much as I care for all of my immediate family, my, my commitment and my connection is under the household of faith. You say, that's not right. Jesus said, if you love mother, brother, husband, sisters, daughters, anything, anybody more than me, you are what? Help me. Someone knows this verse. You are not worthy of me. The esteemment of our lives as Christians, the blood of our connection is unto one another. The Bible says, seek to do well to all, but especially to the household of faith. Jesus said, who is my brother? Who is my brother? Those who hear the word of God and does it. He defined for us, his immediate family was outside telling him, you need to come home, Jesus. You've done too much ministry. You're making us all feel uncomfortable. The family name's being ruined by all the stuff that you're doing. We're all feeling weirded out because you think you're some kind of prophet. He was far more than a prophet. So you need to come home. 
And Jesus is like, don't got time for that. I don't got time for that. That's a reality. This is, again, there's a lack of power within the church because we don't understand where our true family is. And my family is in Christ. I get that. So I have a connection to them even beyond that. But my immediate family, if they don't want to follow the gospel, my co- let the dead bury the dead, Christian. Oh, no, I got to go and spend time with my family that don't know God and on and on and on. Well, haven't you ministered to them? Haven't they, what, what have you done? You're going to spend and you're going to forfeit. You're going to let the devil have you forfeit your destiny trying to bury dead people or trying to resurrect dead people. Let the dead bury the dead. It's not your obligation to save your unloved ones. It's not. We, Jesus, there's one Savior. His name's Jesus. Your obligation is to pray and to reach out a hand whenever available. But people will suck you into a vacuum and you can't get out of it. The gospel produces stability. Those without the gospel are extraordinarily unstable. And so when people encounter your stability, particularly those that feel like you have an obligation to them, they will suck everything out of you. And they will drain you to where you, again, now you feel unstable. Because they've just vacuumed out of you all of the stability that Jesus has just put back in you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Somebody does. The gospel by design produces stability. As we follow God, stability by it naturally is built into our lives. Unstable becomes stable. He lays the foundation. And it's not I'm talking about watching Jesus or you know, hanging out. I'm talking about following Him. Bringing your life into subjection. Bringing your life under the authority of Christ in all ways. God will produce stability. It won't be perfect, but stability will come. Prosperity will come. I'm telling you. It doesn't work because we don't partner with it. The gift is greater than the offense. What happens when we die? Well, we just go push up daisies, Kevin. You know, it's just it. No, the organic, so the organic functions of your body cease. Ready? But your spirit steps through a veil. <laughs> Two realities. Lesser reality is this one. The greater reality is the spiritual world. That's where, that was where we encounter. So when we pass from death to life, we pass through a veil. Next slide. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? In other words, well, don't we all go to Jesus' house? Well, that would be wonderful if that were the case. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, but he who is, and who may stand in his holy place? Who may come before the Lord and be a part of who he is? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul or an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So you know that disqualifies everybody. So in other words, he, the, the psalmist is implying that to ascend and come into God's economy, into God's house, it is not by human means. Your hands aren't clean enough, right? <laughs> your heart is not pure enough. You've lifted up your soul to an idol. And how many of us have sworn deceitfully? Do you know what that means? That means basically told lies. Don't tell me you never told a liar. I'm going to call you a liar here this morning. Okay? I never lie. Liar! <laughs> We're disqualified. So in other words, when we go through the veil, we'd come into God's house. It's not this universalism. We all just aren't just, oh, we all know oh, he's in heaven now. Is he really? Is she really? Inconvenient truth, Christian, but a truth nonetheless. Something the church doesn't even want to talk about anymore, even though it's abundantly clear through the scripture. You cannot avoid this subject, but somehow we do. We don't want to make anybody feel uneasy. We don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Well, you know what? People's eternity is at stake when we neglect that. 
when the pastors don't talk about it, when the church doesn't understand it, and we don't reach out to our world around us, and we don't at least take up a mantle of caring or prayer, or at least invitation, there's a problem. People aren't going to get saved by default. They're not going to be forgiven by default. It just isn't naturally going to happen. People, I've had people tell me, when I get before God, I'm going to reason with them. I said, you won't be reasoning at all. I said, you will be completely gripped in fear of the awe that now is in front of you. The Bible says the planets flee from that face. Jesus is going to reveal a side of himself that you do not want to see. Right now, it's the beauty of grace. It's the beauty of he's bidding you to come. In our arrogance, we call it weakness. And the Bible warns us, do not mistake the humility and the love of God for weakness. It's very clear in that warning. Don't mistake my kindness to you you know, if you're going to reject my offer of salvation and you think I'm weak because I'm offering something to you and you perceive that my, that my offer is a, weak, is a weak gesture to you, you're gravely mistaken. Gravely mistaken. There's not going to be any reasoning. You probably won't even, have, won't even be able to open your mouth in that day if you stand before the white throne. If you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about that. Thank you. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? But to a world that doesn't know Christ, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's not something you're going to reason with. Jesus isn't going to sit down and go, now tell me about yourself and let me qualify you. You will be silent. The Bible says silence before the throne of God. Silent. We take that as what we should do in worship services. That's not talking about worship services. Shout, sing, dance, all that stuff. Without a Savior, we're outside of his kingdom and the Bible considers us adversaries. What? You're an adversary. You're warring against everything he's called. We come into agreement. We give ourselves. This is a reality. This is uncomfortable. I, like you, I have people in my family, in my circle, that don't know Jesus. And do you know who's obligated to reach them? Me. The Bible calls it an oikos. You are obligated by the Father and by heaven itself to reach out to those around you who don't know Jesus. You say, I don't like that. It doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel comfortable. He never. Greater love is no one than this than to lay their life down for their friends. You're laying your life down. You're setting aside your discomfort. Here's the thing. What we're really doing is we're saying, I, I value my self-respect or I value the opinion of the other person of me more than I value this person's eternal soul. You have to lay your life down in order to witness to somebody. You have to actually become humiliated to invite people to church. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, when I invite people to church, I just feel so humiliated. You know what the root word of humiliation is? Humble. You're not humble until you feel humiliation. Don't talk to me about humility unless you understand what humiliation actually is. Humiliation is the same root word as humble. And so when you're humbling yourself and you feel humiliated because you're actually inviting someone to church, God forbid, you're actually participating in the gospel. You're actually suffering or bearing the humility or the shame that he bore. But you're not really bearing anything, are you? Except your own self-respect, your own dignity. Say this with me. The price of revival is dignity. If you will not pay the price of dignity, you will not experience revival. If you will not pay the price of dignity, others will not experience revival. Somebody has to pay the price of dignity. It's exactly what Jesus did. Bore, hung openly. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He submitted his dignity in order for revival to come. Revival's been released, but it activates when we ourselves reduce our own human dignity. That's our problem. Dignified churches. 
dignified. It's not dignified. Drives me crazy. It looks good. Makes me feel good. Makes us feel righteous, doesn't it? Oh, we feel religiously correct. We feel like everybody's got it all together, but that is not the Bible. The Bible is undignified worship. David jumping around in his underwear, man, in his BVDs, looking like a fool. And everybody going, look, you look like a fool. You look so shameful, David. How dare you, king, uncover yourself. You, the dignified king, have abased yourself. Jesus said, if it brings him glory, you haven't seen anything. If me dancing in my underwear honors this king that I serve, you haven't seen nothing. I'm about to go naked next time. I'm about to start streaking if that's where people are going to notice Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. We're so worried about preserving our dignity that we forfeit the gospel. We're so worried about preserving our dignity that we forfeit the power that God has caused to resonate within our own lives because you're so concerned about preserving your dignity. What will people think? What if I must make a mistake? Who cares? Who cares? There is no correction upon mistakes. The correction is upon cowardice. Read your Bible. He never corrected their mistakes. He corrected their cowardice. He corrected their fearfulness. He's not interested. He doesn't care about your mistakes. He'll use them. He'll transform your mistakes into something good. All he needs is some motion. But what, thank God. But what he will correct, says, I minister this to myself all the time when I come back and I, I'm like, man, I said that, I did that, I do, I do something. I, listen, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. So the biggest person making a mistake on Sunday morning is probably the pastor. Somewhere in the context of everything that I speak or everything that I teach, I'm going to say something that probably maybe, maybe is not correct. I mean, I do my best, trust me. I'm very conscious of what comes out of my mouth. And I'm very accountable for what I say, to the most part, as much as I can. But the point is, is that God will use your mistakes. He'll use them. We're fools for Jesus. You know, we hold our lives. We try to preserve. Well, no, I'm born again. No, you're holding your life. You're holding, you're trying to preserve something so that nobody else around you knows they're a Christian. Nobody else around you knows that they need Jesus. Nobody else around you. It's a simple invitation. I mean, we boil down, I boil evangelism down to its lowest common denominator. God would have us all being witnesses. God would have us all being testifiers of his kingdom. But the reality is, is most of us can't do that. So what can we do? We can be an Andrew. You can invite somebody. And there's no excuse. Say it with me. There's no excuse. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how I think. Heaven does not accept my excuses of being a coward. Not one time. You want to you you get Jesus to actually say something to you? Act like a coward and make an excuse. Read what he says to the cowardly. He's very to the point. He does not accept cowardice as an excuse. Ever. I was afraid. I buried it. He doesn't accept that. So we somehow in ourselves, here's the deal. Courage is found in the Spirit, Christian. So we pray for those who don't know Jesus, and we ask the Lord to prevent an opportunity, and he's going to give you one in golden, shining colors, and you're going to freak out when it comes. And you're going to rescind. You're going to want to go run like a chicken and put your head in the ground. But what you need to do is go, Lord, I need the courage now. And you know what most of the courage is? Nothing happens till you open your mouth. There's a power that's given to the believer that is only activated when we open our mouths. He's not going to give you any more than a direction until you open your mouth. And when you open your mouth, you may mumble, you may stumble, you may fumble. But God will still use what you're offering him.
He'll put his power on it, put his glory on it. His, his, his grace is on obedience. Obedience is greater than sacrifice. God's attitude towards people not knowing him look like this. People like Jesus is like waiting for people to die, you know, like he's just like this, you know, spiritual tornado just looking to, you know, pound people. And it's completely a misguided understanding. The Bible says this, as I live, declares the Lord. He's telling them, I want you to say this. He's telling the prophet, tell the people this. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no glory. He doesn't take pleasure in people dying without knowing him. There's no honor to him in that. He says, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And here the Lord says, turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why would you choose to die? God's attitude towards people that are lost is that. God's attitude towards people that are lost is 2 Peter 3.9. Lord's not slow concerning his promises. As some understand slowness. He is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. What repentance is, is returning. God is patient, wanting people to return to him. Wanting people to look to him. Next slide. Witnessing is important, Christian. We all have people in our lives that don't know Jesus. Say this with me. People come to Christ on the arms of a loving friend. You say, well, I brought somebody to church, Kevin. You, you, know, you kind of laid an egg that Sunday. It didn't work. You know, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> Listen, when you bring someone and you've, you've reached to that person to the degree that God has called you to, you're free of that. But I guarantee you, if you ask the Lord to burden your heart for five people in your world, because you may say, I don't feel any burden for anybody. Well, you know why? Because your heart's calloused. You have a callous on your heart. If you, have a bur- if you don't have a burden as a Christian for lost people, your heart has become hard. And that's a problem. Because that is not where you want to be. And so what you need to ask Him for is, Lord, identify five people around me. Ask the Holy Spirit. And you're just going to be kind of going about your day and He's going to go, boop, right there. You mean Jim? You want me to, you, yep, identify. Write them down. Get five people. Begin to actively pray for those people that God would open their hearts. It's identify them, pray for them, and then engage them. Ask the Holy Spirit to begin to work in their lives, to begin to show them that they need Jesus. When you pray for people their lives, that don't know Jesus, their lives get worse. I want you to know that. People in your world that don't know Jesus, you begin to pray for them, their life gets worse. And you say, why is that? Because God will show them their need for Him. Oh, I'm praying for my husband. I had a lady tell me one time, I'm praying for my husband. He doesn't know Jesus. I really want to see him get saved. And then she's like, but ever since I started praying for him, his life has just become a disaster. I'm like, you know why? Because your husband thinks he's God. Your husband doesn't think he needs God. Your husband thinks he has everything in control. And what the Lord is showing him is that he does not. You don't, you only, if you don't need him, you don't have him. That's how salvation works. You must need him. And you know, in Him we live, move, and have our being. We need Him every minute of every hour of every day. There is no separation with that. This is the truth. So when you pray for people, expect something to pivot with them. You're going to start praying for somebody in their workplace, and you're going to be walking by, and they're going to be going, oh my gosh, I just can't understand with it. My son's just having a disaster, and I feel like my whole life is melting down. Ding, 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 ding. Oh no, that's just her having a bad day. No, really? You know? You're going to pray for people, and all of a sudden, you're going to be consciously aware of the problems that are existing in their life. Out of nowhere, you're going to become aware of it. Because you're praying for them, God is going to create what is called a beachhead. Tensions, transitions, and troubles. That's how people come to Christ in tragedies. Tensions, transitions, troubles, and tragedies. That's what leads people to Jesus. 
And so when you're praying for people, you're going to become actively aware of those things. The tensions, the tragedies, the troubles, the transitions, those are the things that you're going to become aware of. I just moved to the city. I just don't know anybody. I just, I just can't find a friend. Hey, why don't you come to church with me? No, I don't want to come to church. Why don't you come to life group? No, I don't want to do that. Why don't you come to the women's group? No, I don't want to do that. I mean, we've got so many opportunities to invite people. And this is one of the things why we do what we do as a church. And we probably should do more. But this is what churches need to do. And the people must go and reach. But the church needs to put the cookies on the low shelf and create an opportunity for people to invite people. You have no excuse not to invite anyone. My challenge to you in this coming year is to see five people. That's my challenge. You have no excuse. Five people. Everybody hold up five. Come on. Hold it up. Don't be holy. Don't be righteous. I'm not holding up anything. I'm dignified, Pastor. I'm in church. And I want you to look up to heaven with five fingers up. And I want you to say this. Lord, Lord give me five. He's going to give you five. What about those who've never heard Jesus? The Bible tells us this. Here's what, I'm going to give you a couple quick answers. I'm, I pivoted into another direction, but I'm going to give you this. I'm going to run quick. And I'm just going to give you this, and I'm going to encourage you. People who've never heard. Well, what about people who've never heard the gospel, Kevin? What about them? You know, the Bible tells us this. The Gentiles, Paul's speaking to Jews who have all of the knowledge, and he says when someone who doesn't have the knowledge that you possess, and yet they operate by a spiritual principle and a spiritual law, and they actually follow a path of spiritual righteousness, the Lord says he equates that as a law unto themselves. So people that have never heard about Jesus, you need to take a, take a breath and have a Cinnabon and realize that God's got it all under control. He will judge them based upon the light, upon the knowledge that they have. He will base people, whatever knowledge they have and whatever he is witnessing by his spirit in all ways. And so there was a release of a witness within all of these cultures, whether they choose to follow it or whether they don't. They may not have the fullness of knowledge or the fullness of revelation, but there is a witness and a ministry of the Spirit, and God will equate them without knowledge according to what they followed in the Spirit. But here in the United States of America and here in the Western world, we have no excuse. I don't care what country you came from. If you're in this country, you have no excuse. The gospel is bombarded upon this nation. The gospel moves through this place like a river. We have churches on every corner. I don't like church. Find a good one. You're welcome here. Okay? I'm not sure if I like you yet, Kevin. That's okay. <laughs> I reserve the right to disagree with myself at any time. I understand. What about those who've never heard or understood? God's got it under control. And if you're that burdened for it, why don't you saddle up and go somewhere that w and be that person? But he's got it under control. What's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? There's another one. I've had a Christian come to me, and I don't know, I'm a Christian, but I feel like I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I can't be saved. I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The Bible says if we offend or push willfully against once revelation has been given, I won't read it all for you. What it says is we insult the Spirit of grace. Jesus said all manner of blasphemy against the Father and the Son will be forgiven, but the profane, the Holy Spirit, that will not be forgiven. So what the Bible is telling us here is harmatano. The revelation comes to us. I'm here telling you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you're a sinner and you're lost and you need salvation. And you don't know why, but all of a sudden a bomb just goes off in your heart and you get a revelation. Well, that's true. And then your head starts reasoning you away. No, that's not true. That's completely wrong. That's not, you know, don't listen to this guy. You're going with emotion. You're pushing away from a revelation that's being released in your heart. God is humbling himself and releasing a revealing into your heart that you need to come to him. And when you push away from that, the Bible tells us there's no longer any appropriation for sacrifice. What it's saying to us is if you persist in such a matter, that sin will not be forgiven. 
The sin of offending the Spirit of grace by pushing away from Him when He's revealing clear need for you to be saved. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I don't know about you. I've been, I had the gospel told to me many times. I didn't embrace it the first time. First time I got revelation that I was a sinner. The first time I got revelation, boom, in my heart that I, did, I was separated. It was a little shocking and overwhelming for me. But the truth was there nonetheless. Then the next time it came, I'm like, wow, you know what? You're right. I am that person. So what do I do? That's the difference. You have to engage that. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the revelation that, or, or the need for salvation. Next slide. I could develop that more, but I don't have time. Here's the last slide. To the believer. What is the, what is the life-giving message to the believer? What is the assurance? You are to live your life with absolute confidence, Christian. Did you know that? You're, say it with me. In Christ. Come on. I want you to feel this. I am immortal. You are immortal. Immortal. You are eternal. You will not die. Ha ha ha. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in victory. The Christian doesn't die. You live eternally. You're an immortal being. And that is a life and a power that is granted to you right now. You need to live from heaven heaven present, future present. Christians, our design is to live from the kingdom now. That's how we design. Most of us, we just live circumstantially or we live backwards. Well, you need to live as where you're going. Every decision in your life needs to be based on a future. Every decision in your life needs to be based on what lies in front of you. This world and everything that it is is passing away. That world is coming. We live from there to here. Everything we do in this life echoes in eternity. You cannot disqualify yourself from salvation, Christian, but you can disqualify yourself from reward. Everything we've given to him is what we will be rewarded with. For now, the earthly tent we live in is destroyed. This is Paul talking to the Christians. But we're going to get a building made from God. We're all going to get a new body. Aren't you glad? All the 20-somethings are like, dude, my body's fine, man. The rest of us, where the hips are going out. We're like, when's that coming? <laughs> when, when's that new body coming? I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm sure it's going to be cool. I don't know if we get to choose which model. Ferrari model, Lexus model, you know, whatever. Lamborghini model. I don't know if we get to choose which one we want. That would be cool. But we have a, ha- we have a building made from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly body. A body that doesn't, doesn't know need, doesn't know want. A body that is designed in wholeness and holistic encounter with God. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit in your heart, Christian, is the down payment of the deposit. Do you know when you get in the spirit and you feel the beauty and the power of the spirit? Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? We need to testify. When we get into the beauty and the power of the spirit, the Bible says that's a foretaste of the kingdom that is coming. That's the, all that is is a sampler. That's a taste of what is to come. So you need to get in the Spirit and just receive from the Spirit, man, because that is your future. That is your reality, and that is your future. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I had an encounter with the Lord. I told you I'd do, I mean, last year was, you know, I had some personal tragedy come into our life. My niece took her, took her life. It was not a happy thing. It was a lot of problems that led to that situation. 
but when I was there, I'd had a lot of bad things happen to me over the years. And, you know, like John the Baptist goes, uh, are you the one or do we look for another? How did he get to that point? How did he getting hit to the point where he's declaring the winnowing fan and the coming king and all this other stuff? The axe is laid at the root of the tree. How did he go from here? Brood of vipers, same guy, right? Who's warned you to flee the coming wrath? To getting now he's in prison and he's like, are you the one or are you the one to come? Because he had had so many circumstances knock him off track and he found himself in a position that he didn't really expect. Okay, and I've heard people judge John for that. And I'm like, until you've walked in that guy's shoes... You should, never, you should never diminish him because he had a moment of questioning, right? Oh, John's questioning his faith. No, he's saying, I went all in on this, Jesus. Are you really the one? And so my niece lost her life. And so I was praying and I was asking the Lord. And I'm like, is this all as real? Because it felt so surreal, you know, everything. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Sometimes it just feels like, you know. And I was just asking the Lord. I'm like, Lord, is all this real? And he didn't give me the answer right away. I, you know, of course, I wait for him. I know how he is. He waits and... He'll tell me at a, more, at a more opportune time. And I was at my house, and I was reading Gospel of John. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. And he says this. This is what stood out to me. If it were not so, I would have told you. My question was, Lord, is this real? And he said, Kevin, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. It is as I say, because I've told you it is. There are many mansions. There is a heaven to gain. There is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. I go there now to prepare a place for you so that when I come again, I will receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may also be. You can be sure as a Christian. You can absolutely be 100% positive that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if your loved ones have died in faith and they are with Jesus, and you say, well, if I don't know if my loved one died in faith, well, then what you need to do is God is merciful and God is kind. I don't know if my dad ever gave his life to Christ. And it wasn't for want of trying. I certainly tried. I certainly tried. And now what he did and what his own private decision was, I don't know. And I saw that there were many people trying to reach him in his life because I was praying for him. I had a guy come up to me at my dad's funeral and say, you're Kevin. I said, yeah. He said, you're the born-again Christian. I said, yeah. And he said, your dad used to talk a lot about you. I said, really? And then he said, um, uh, I was fishing a lot with him before he died. And he said, I don't know what your decision your dad made, but he said, I'm going to tell you I witnessed to him. And I told him. You know what that tells you? It tells you that God is more interested in reaching your loved one than you are. And whatever decision your loved one made was on them, but it is not going to be on the Lord because God has reached towards them and has probably provided many more opportunities than you can possibly be aware of. And so when people don't receive Christ and they go into eternity without Jesus Christ, that fault is not on the Lord. It's not. But as a Christian, you can be sure and you can live as if you're immortal. You're going to live forever. Have you ever thought about that? Your meditation, you got two assignments. Number one, Lord, give me five. And number two, Lord, reveal to me the eternity of who I am. Let him show you the eternal reality of who you really are. It'll change your life. You see things only from a temporary perspective. When you begin to see things eternally, the world itself changes. Your spectrum and your viewpoint of everything will shift. If you continually see it only from this worldly plane, it will never, you'll never get circumstance vision, or uh, I per- forget what, that's not peripheral, there's a, there's a word, circumspect. You will not get circumspect and ability to see all around, but when you understand spiritual reality, then you will. All right, I love you guys. I bless you guys. I'm way over time, so we're going to start, but let me just close this service for you. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus, this is the opportunity. I cannot preach the gospel or make you aware of this without providing an opportunity 
Church doesn't save you. Family doesn't save you. Your good works don't save you. Only Jesus can. And salvation is very, very easy. Jesus has made it very simple. Like an elevator, it's very easy to operate, but somebody paid a high price to install it. And so Jesus paid a high price to give you an opportunity to come back home, to come back to Him, to have your sins forgiven and to be translated from, light, from darkness to light. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I want to provide you with that opportunity. I just want you to pray with us. The church is going to pray with you. Just open your heart. Humble your pride and open your heart. And just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that You are the Savior and I need a Savior. I may not understand this, but I choose to believe it. And so I open my heart to You, Jesus. And I ask You to come inside. I ask You to forgive me. I ask You to heal me. I ask You to restore me. And I ask You to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to You. And all that You are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow You. In Jesus' name. Let me bless You one more time. Just receive the blessing. May the Lord bless You. May the Lord keep You. May the Lord cause His face to shine down upon You. May the Lord be gracious to You. And may He give You peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to do impartation and healing or laying hands on people at 3.30. If you want to come back, you're more than welcome to. You say, I don't know what it's all about. Just show up and we're going to bless you. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.